We thank you, Father, for your word is light. For your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you, Father, for illumination in your word. We thank you, Father, for our hearts are open to receive of the truth of your word, that we receive the clarity, all that you have for us this evening. And in the name of Jesus, every doubt is dispelled, every question is answered. In the name of Jesus, every doubt is dispelled, every question is answered. In the name of Jesus, every rebellion to your word is brought down. In the name of Jesus, there is utterance for me to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for we know that as we study your word today, there is a free flow of your spirit and power, and there are testimonies accompanying. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So good evening, good evening everybody. Um, trust you're doing good. So today we are going to continue um, on our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, we are currently on the 10th um, track of this series. And um, this is where on the third chapter. Um, last week, we rounded up on, on Ephesians 3, verse 4. All right. And um, I just want to say a couple of things before we go on. I would say that, first of all, you see, one of the things that learning does is that learning makes you, or growing in the word, generally learning. Three things that happen when a man learns things. First of all, of course, he learns. But then there's also the fact that he unlearns and then he relents. All right. So there are certain things that you would have learned in the past, or there are certain things that you would have known, certain ideologies, certain mental models, you know, certain... Um, things that you would have picked up, all right, from time to time about your knowledge of the word. Now, when you are taught the word and you see a much more accurate representation of those things from scripture, what you do is that you align your understanding, all right? You align your understanding and then you let what God's word says take preeminence over what you feel or what you think you know, okay? And this is very important because, um, there are certain things, the, the subject of God is one that almost everybody is familiar with. You know, particularly when you grow up in a relatively religious society like ours, everybody at some point begins to talk about God, all right? And so the, the average person is convinced to believe that he knows God or that he knows about God or that he knows the things that there are, all right, the most important things there are about God. And so naturally, we have this um, natural propensity to just say stop, you know, generally to sing stop you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we must come to a point where we say, you know what, what does God's word say about God? And then when we see what God's word says, we align with what God's word says, okay? We must ensure, in fact, that our vocabulary is consistent with the vocabulary of scripture, you know? Um, if God's word says that when, for example, if, the, I'm going to use an example as the Ephesians 1 prayer. Now, if the Ephesians 1 prayer says that when you come together, that you pray, that God would grant unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, that's the prayer, all right? The prayer cannot be that, um, uh, the prayer cannot be that God should open up something in us, all right? The prayer is that we receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that the eyes of understanding are flooded with light. Why? Because we receive, all right, the spirit of wisdom. I've explained this in, in the series in um, when I did Ephesians 1, that what he's talking about here 
is receiving spiritual wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him all right and so you must learn to stick with the vocabulary of scriptures some things are more convenient to say some things are very easy to say because they are things that we are used to saying but we must say okay what does the scripture say about this and if this is what the scripture say about this we must be insistent all right on patterning our vocabulary after the vocabulary of scripture okay so it's very important to say that so there must be a time when you say you know what i'm going to say only what the scripture says even in my prayer even in my songs even in how i conduct myself all right and then i'm going to stick with what it says no matter how inconvenient it might seem so this might even mean sometimes having to reconstruct your prayer vocabulary okay uh uh you know for example there there is the unconscious um unconscious part of us that always wants to say you know god give us the grace to give us the grace to now when you look at how phrases were constructed in scripture all right particularly when he um, speaks about the grace of god there are two times there are two particular or major places you're going to see the grace of god spoken about or let me say in two different contexts two major contexts first of all you see the grace of god being spoken about in salvation right and then you see the grace of god being spoken about when it comes to ministry either of those places you are not told to pray for it. in salvation that the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared unto all men all right so one thing you see clearly is that the grace of god is what is given to all men all right however in salvation all right a man receives that grace by believing okay and when he talks about grace for ministry all right um, to each one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of god all right what you realize there is that in both cases grace was not given because people asked grace is not given because you pray all right the place where it might seem like you know people pray for grace in that sense where you see when paul is making salutations to certain churches and then he says grace and peace to you all right from our lord and savior jesus christ but we realize as i've told you before that what he was doing there wasn't praying for them he was rather you know um what's the word now he was rather giving them a salutation reminding them of their realities in christ jesus all right it was a salutation to them based on your eyes in christ jesus so you do not find even though we are used to it right even though it's something we are used to even though it's something that we've been exposed to for a very long time you do not find any example from scripture where people pray for a grace for something you don't pray for a grace for god to open your eyes to see something you don't pray for a grace for all that God will give you. And that's why I remember when I explained this, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I've done that, but when I when I'm, I usually speak about the Spirit, I said, all that God did for the man in Christ is in the Spirit. All that the man in Christ would ever need is in the Spirit. What Christianity is, is an exploration into what God has done for the man in Christ. Christianity is not um, a journey or an escapade into man seeing what he can continually ask from God. Christianity actually is a journey into man um, coming into a better understanding of what God has done for him. And so it would be, um, it would not be correct or it would not be right for the man in Christ to therefore ask. Say, for example, you want to pray for revelation knowledge. Pray for revelation knowledge. Don't pray for the grace for you to know God. God has given you that grace already because he gave you his spirit. By spirit, you can know him. All right. By spirit, you can know him. All right, look at First Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2 uh, and verse 10. First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. Please, I want you to pay attention to this closely. 
I've not started my topic for today anyways, but I want to lay this foundation. He says, I'll start from verse 9. He says, but as it is written, I have not seen nor yet heard. Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. He says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. He says, yea, the deep things of God. So look at what he says. He says, the, he says God has revealed them unto us by his spirit. All right. So the reality of this, and I think I've, I've done, I did an explanation of First Corinthians 2 while I was doing um, doing um, the Understanding Your Bible series, something like that. All right. Where I did quite some series on Bible understanding and Bible interpretation. That as a reason of the spirit of God that man now has, he can understand God. Now, this is the major difference between men of the old and men of the new. Men of the old could prophesy this thing, but they did not have insight and understanding into the things that they prophesied. But now that, but men of the new covenant are men who, having received of the prophecies of the Old Testament, can now have insight and understanding into that which is spoken. Another one you see in verse 14, it says that, but the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them for their spiritually descent. He says, but he that is spiritual judges all things. The word judge there is the word descent. All right. He that is spiritual descends all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. He says, for we who has known the mind of the Lord and instructs him, but we have the mind of Christ. And some other versions say we have the understanding of Christ. So what he's speaking about here is the ability for believers to actually understand the things about God. So the believer, it would be, it would be wrong. In this dispensation, when I said in this dispensation, in dispensation of the gifts of the Holy Ghost, for the believer to still ask for the grace to understand God. No, he has given you that grace when he gave you his spirit. What you should be asking for rather now is that as you go into the world, your eyes are open to see. Are we together? And your eyes being open to see isn't necessarily what God is going to give you. Your eyes being open to see is you being more conscious, all right, of the revelation knowledge that is present within your spirit, that your mind comes to know that which God has done for you in your spirit. So it's really not about God giving you something new. It's more about you being a lot more conscious of that which is present in your spirit, that to, to the end that your mind can be renewed by the same. All right. And why did I say all of this? It's just to make you realize that as a function of your knowledge, because as I said this over and over again, that we a teaching ministry, all right? We teach a lot. And so because of that, you can become so used to teaching that you don't let it influence you. The point of teaching is not teaching. I said it before. The point of light in a room is not so that you can admire the light. It's so that the light can make you see other things. So the point of teaching is not teaching. It's not teaching. It's not that you say, oh, wow, we teach a lot here. But there's a lot of information to handle. No. The point of it is that it influences the things you say, the things you do, and how you conduct your life. Okay, so because God's word is being taught, there are vocabularies of God's word that must influence your vocabulary. Even if you've been used to asking for the grace for something, no longer should you ask for that. Even if you've been used to um, God open my, He's not necessarily opening your eyes. Are we together? You are the one who will sit down to read and understand. And by the spirits, the eyes of your mind will be opened. So even when you say open, um, um, my eyes are opened, you know, you have to understand the context to which you say it. Okay, so the so the point of it is there comes a point in your life or there comes a time in your life where you say, you know what? What does the Bible say about these matters? How can I pattern my vocabulary by these things? Hallelujah. How can I pattern my vocabulary by these things? And that's very important. Now, next thing I want to say is um today is the 10th track of understanding efficiency. And 
it can get boring. That's also something very important to say. And you see, there, there, there is something that um, that we um, need to learn, okay, as young folks. Because this is the thing. As young folks, we are very excited people. We have a lot of energy, all right? And so there is always the normal tendency for us to want to do something new. You want, you want to try out something new. You want to explore, etc., etc. But you see... Those things, it might be fine, right? In the secular world, to want to explore something new, do the next thing, the next big thing. But you see, when it comes to Bible doctrine, said it again and again, you have to stick with what works. And what works is repetition. Okay? Uh, you have to stick with what works. And so oftentimes, revelation, oftentimes, actually, revelation is the excitement. Okay? Revelation is sitting down to study. I showed you guys last week how that when Paul was speaking, he says, when you read, you may understand my knowledge and mystery of Christ. And I told you that the word read there is the Greek word anaginosko, which means to read and to read again. It's actually a kind of reading that proposes that you do not just read once. You read again and again and again. All right. And it's important to note that because you need to be comfortable with not necessarily hearing something new. Because it, it won't always feel interesting. Okay. It won't always feel exciting. Very likely, you're not as excited now as when we started, as when we started the, the, um, this particular series, okay? I'm not necessarily excited about it, too. That's the truth. But you have to stay with it because that's revelation knowledge. Revelation knowledge doesn't always involve excitement. And you see, as a, as a minister of the gospel, you must understand that the gospel is whole and entire. There's such a thing as the entire counsel of God. Paul speaking in Acts 20, verse 26. Please go there. Acts 20, verse 26. I'm um, actually He says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. He says, But I have not shown to declare unto you all of the counsel of God. So it means that there is such a thing as the entire counsel of God. It's like an entire curriculum. Okay. And yet the interesting thing about the counsel of God, it won't always be the path that you like. For example, there's such a thing called balanced diet. Now, the way balanced diet works is that there are certain things on the menu you might like, and there are a whole lot of things you won't like. In fact, oftentimes, not if you want to stay healthy, you're going to have to eat things that you don't necessarily like. And so that is the way you must see God's word, that there are certain topics that you might not necessarily like. All right? And the topics that they excite you, the spirits, you know, the workings of the spirits, the miraculous, prophecy, ultra, et cetera, et cetera. All right? Uh, prayer. You know, possibly that excites you. Now, there are some other parts that might not really ex excite you. But if, they, if it is part of the curriculum, you have to learn it. Are we together? An example is contextual study, for example. All right. It's a huge, huge part. In fact, all that we will do in the Christian faith is predicated upon our knowledge of those concepts. For example, if you're going to talk about prayer, you have to see what the Bible says about prayer. And in seeing what the Bible says about prayer, you have to take a very studious approach towards it to understand so it can be effective in prayer. And so you would see that there it's different parts of a whole. And it is necessary. It's important. So you don't have to like it. You don't take, for example, you don't just take the things you like. If you only took, if you only ate the things you like, it's highly unlikely that you would grow well. If it was based on the things you like, probably don't take any ice cream. You take ice cream, you take uh what else? Maybe, uh, let's see, you take, uh, you know, uh, all manner of junks, all right, et cetera, et cetera. 
Now, you will take those things because they are nice for you, because they are cool, because you enjoy them, but you wouldn't necessarily grow together. For you to grow, you have to take the things that your body needs, whether or not you like them. And that's the way it is with spiritual growth. You have to take those things that you need, whether or not you like them, because then are you growing. And it's not just by you listening to them. You have to also subject your mind to the training of God's word, such that whether or not you like what you are hearing, you have to subject, if it is God's word, you have to subject your mind to it. And you have to determine that your mind is going to receive and that you're going to walk in that which you hear. That is spiritual growth. Okay, that is spiritual growth. All right, because I'm saying this because not just for this series, but for more series to come. There are going to be a couple of series that are going to hear that you like. For example, if we do a teaching on relationship, it's highly unlikely that you want it to stop. Highly unlikely, all right? Um, if you do a teaching on maybe money, it's highly unlikely you might want it to stop, you know, etc., etc. That same mindset and attitude you have, all right, towards those things, you must also have that same mindset and attitude towards the teaching of God's word in other areas. All right. So whether or not you like it, you have to stick with it, okay? And you have to go through with it. All right. And last but not least, why? Why have you been ex um, examining efficiency for so long? Why? What's the point? Simple. It's because the kind of approach that we're taking into studying this, as I've told you guys before, is not just an approach that, that comes up with answers, but it's an approach that enables you to sit down with the methods used and say, you know what? I want to come up with answers for myself. And then it helps you get answers. All right. So here, the training or the teaching isn't just for you to have answers. It's for you to become one and give answers as well. And so what we did in um, Ephesians 3 was to, you know, begin. We spoke a little about Paul's administration or ministry to the church. Okay. Um, rounding up Ephesians 2, talking about Jews and Gentiles being saved. Okay. You know, finishing that, he now says, for this cause. Hi, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you, Gentiles. So we spoke about the fact that Paul had a dispensation or an administration of the grace of God that was given to him for Gentiles. And I, I remember I did quite some, you know, talking here as regards the work of ministry. How that? The work of ministry is a work of service, all right? And you've been called into ministry. You've been called to serve people. So you are not called onto ministry, you know, to become something. No, you are called onto ministry to serve people. All right. The idea of ministry is that God gives you a work for people. All right. And we saw that the ministry that God actually gave unto Paul was for him to reveal or to give a revelation of the of the mystery of Christ. All right. Um, um, and he said, of course, when you read, you understand. He now says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this is where I ended last week. Where I said that when we speak about the um prophets here the holy apostles and prophets are not two different people that the way we see apostles and prophets used here is not the same way we see it used in chapter two the apostles and prophets used here is actually an example of the tsks rule in other words the prophets really are the apostles all right to make better sense of it, i'm not going to say so much about this here to make better sense of it you can just listen to the previous track that we have a lot of time i'm not going to do that okay so you can listen to that but i'm just going to move straight to verse six so after Paul has, you know, um, validated his ministry, all right, to the Ephesians, to let them know, oh, see, I was called by God unto you, all right, uh, and, you know, this is the um, basis of my calling, all right, which is that 
In other ages, that which I'm about to speak to you was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed now. All right. So that is the foundation of my ministry. And now the next thing he wants to do is to let you know the content of his message. And what is the content of his message? He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, all right, and of the same body as partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, if you do not forget, in chapter 2, what you see Paul try to do was Paul was trying to establish in the previous chapter, establish how that the Gentiles were also, um, have also been made partakers of salvation, just as the Jews, all right? Just, you know, from our study on Ephesians 2, we saw that initially the Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers from the covenant of promise, all right? But then we now see that as a reason of the breaking down of the middle one of partition, God had made, Jesus had made both twin, all right? They had, they had made, um, the twin one flesh all right and in doing so he could now offer his body as a sacrifice for sins for them all together and in doing so he had now given everyone access both jew and gentile okay and so paul is now letting you know that see that thing that you have right there the fact that gentiles can be saved is something that the jews did not know and that's true because if you look at the way the old testament was all right and even not just the old testament the church in the early years which was heavily jewish all right heavily jewish of course you'll notice that when salvation was going to start of course salvation there from, from among the jews all right the jews were the first set of folks to get saved and this is the reason why even in, even after the jews were saved they stayed even though jesus particularly told them in acts chapter one and he says you will receive power um um, um you shall receive power that the holy ghost come upon you and you will witness of me also me in Judea in Samaria, all right, in Bethlehem, Judea, Samaria, is, and it says, and also the uttermost parts of the earth. You realize the fact that they still stayed in Jerusalem, were still preaching in Jerusalem, and up until Acts 7, all right, they were in Jerusalem. Now, interesting fact is even after Stephen was killed, sorry, that's Acts 8, even after Stephen was killed and they were spread abroad, Bible says that even when they were, even when they went out of Jerusalem to preach, they were only preaching to Jews in those regions. So there was a mindset that they had, which was heavily influenced by the um, mosaic laws, all right, or the Jewish cultures, the Jewish culture that made them believe that salvation was for the Jews. That was together. And so the ministry that was given unto Paul was to establish the fact that as a reason of faith in Christ Jesus, and now pay attention to that, if they would believe that salvation is for the Jews alone, it would mean something, therefore. It would mean that they would also believe that a man is only saved as a function of doing some things that pertain to Jews alone. No man can believe that salvation is via faith in Christ Jesus and still believe that not every man can be saved. It doesn't make any sense. For you to believe that only Jews can be saved, it is either you believe that there is something about the lineage of Jews that makes them special for salvation, or... There are certain things that Jew, Jews do, all right, that makes them, um, what's the word, that makes them uh, qualified for the work of salvation, okay? And of course, I mean, as you would see in, the, in your study of the book of Acts continuously, hopefully one day we'll be able to do a study on the book of Acts. Or our study, from the study of the book of Acts, you consistently say through Acts 15, for example, you can see what the Jews thought about salvation. That even though they, you know, to an extent understood that salvation was by faith in Christ Jesus, they still believe that salvation was a function of some of the things they did. Was, was a function of, you know, 
some of the laws, all right? Don't do this, don't do that. Even though salvation will cause you not to do these things, you doing or not doing them isn't the reason you are saved. And I think I've explained this well enough. In you know, in explaining Ephesians chapter 2, Proverbs 8, where it says that for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Meaning, if there is anything you can boast about that you did in salvation, then it's not salvation. Salvation has to be totally devoid of your works to the end that man has nothing to boast about. That's salvation, pretty much. Okay, so if there's anything that you, be, you can be able to say, Oh, I did this in order to be saved then that is not salvation. Okay? And so the Jews held on to this mindset, all right? And so Paul is saying that, see, this is where me I came in. I came in so that I could reveal, okay, I could reveal that salvation is not just for the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And it's interesting that Paul is saying, if you pay attention, it's interesting that Paul is saying that these things had been spoken by Old Testament prophets that this thing had been spoken by Old Testament prophets, but now has been revealed to him as an apostle, so that he could now speak unto others. What this would mean is that the, the um, message that salvation could be for all men was actually present from the Old Testament. How be it was present in the ministry? That's what Paul is saying here, that the idea that the Gentiles can be saved all right, that the Gentiles can be saved is one that had been present since the Old Testament. However, it was in a mystery. I go together. It was in a mystery. But now, he's now saying it has been revealed so that we can see it clearly. All right. And so, that's in my sense. Look at Psalms chapter 2. Look at Psalms 2, just to give an understanding of that. Psalms 2. Psalms chapter 2. The Psalms chapter two. All right. Uh, I don't want to read from verse one all the way down, but look at when you look at verse eight. Psalms chapter two. When you look at verse eight. All right. It says, "Ask of me, and I shall give thee the hidden for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession." Again, ask of me, and I will give thee the hidden for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth. For their possession. I remember in um, our study on Hebrews last month, or sorry, that was this month actually. In our study on, on Hebrews this month, I explained how that in what you have in Psalms 2 is actually a messianic sound, meaning it's foreshadowing what would happen in Christ Jesus. All right. And interestingly, in verse 8, it says, Ask of me and I shall give thee the eaten for thy inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for their possession. Now, you would normally see this verse, and if you're just looking at the same number, you say, oh, ask of me, and I'll give you the for the inheritance. Maybe he's talking about slavery. You know, that um, ask of me, and then I'll make the Gentiles your inheritance, or I'll make them your slaves, so you can inherit them. But then you realize that if this is a messianic sound, which was not even clear at the time, all right, if in Christ Jesus, we now have an understanding and say, oh, this is a messianic sound, you have the implication of the eaten being our inheritance that will transcend beyond just maybe slavery or we being masters over them. Rather, it would, there, there will be a mindset that we must have that when he says Gentiles as inheritance, we must see that in the light of the sacrifice of Jesus. Are we together? And so this is an example of where you see the possibility of Gentiles being a part of the family of God. But the issue is that it is spoken of in a mystery. Okay? And so that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, see, from the foundation of the world, all right, from the Old Testament scriptures, 
you already have you know, enough evidence of how that God wants all men in Christ Jesus. How that God wants both Jews and Gentiles to be of one, to be of the family of God. But He's telling you that you won't see those things because they are in a mystery. But now, by revelation, it has been made known unto me. And the mystery that is given unto me is that I now present that revelation of Christ that has been given unto me to you. Okay. So that's what's important to say. So back to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians three. Ephesians chapter three. All right. Ephesians three. Uh okay. So I've seen verse verse five. Now verse six says that the Gentiles, so that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise by the gospel. So that is the revelation I spoke about. That Gentiles would be fellow heirs, right? To be fellow heirs of the same body, and they will be partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus. Verse 7 says, Wherefore I was made a minister according to the great, great gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So look at two things that he said about him being a minister here. He says, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God unto me. And by the by the effectual working of his power. Now I said something about that in my notes. Um okay. Now the word gift there is the Greek word Gorilla. The word gift there is the Greek word Gorilla. Now um, I think I've explained this to you guys before. Now when you look at the word gifts in the epistles, there are two major ways gifts are spoken about. First is charisma, the other is Gorilla. Alright. And the word charisma actually refers to a supernatural ability. Okay, a supernatural faculty. Is the word that was used for the gifts of the spirit, all right? The supernatural faculty actively working in the one that believes, okay? But then when you look at the way, the other way gift is used, which is the Greek word doria or duron, it actually refers to uh, the, the it, it places more emphasis on the free nature of the gift or the freeness, I'm able to say that, of the gift, okay? So doria actually talks more about how free it is to get the gift. No, and not necessarily now charisma focuses more on the on the uh supernatural faculty of the gift more that more like when you have the gift you can now do something supernaturally that's what charisma focuses on but doria focuses on the fact that um or, or focuses more on how free it is to receive the gift okay and so paul is saying something here paul is saying i was made a minister by the gift of the grace of god so that's one of the ways to see to see ministry. That is a gift of the grace of God. You did nothing to merit it. This is something very important for you to know as a minister of the gospel, because this keeps you humble. That for me to be called into the work of ministry, I did nothing to deserve it. All right, I did nothing to deserve it. It's not something I got as a reason of. You know, people don't think that um, a call into ministry is a reward for fervency. All right. So when you see. When you see a man who is fervent in the things of God, you know, who is you know given to prayer, given to the study of scripture, etc. etc., then the next thing is to call him pastor. Why? Because you know, oh well, he's fervent, so God de definitely has to call him. That's not true. That's not true. God doesn't call a man because the man is fervent. The call of God upon a man's life is a gift of the grace of God. And I think it's very important for us to know this because this also makes you realize that God's man is God's man. Whether or not you like him, I remember I said this in a personal, you know, I think I was meditating upon this, and then this came to my heart. 
that see when it comes to God, God's call upon a man's life, all right, the, the only person's opinion that matters is God's opinion. The reality of it is this God even called the man because the man was interested in being called. Of course, it is the man's choice to yield to that call, all right. But the reality of it is it is only God's opinion that matters when it, when God calls the man. Even the man's opinion is not necessary. And that's the reason why in Jeremiah 1, for example, when God called Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, Ha, how this thing be? I'm just a child. So even Jeremiah did not believe in his call. Do you understand me? Even Jeremiah did not believe in his call. Only God, at the time when the Jeremiah was called, only God believed in Jeremiah's call. That's the simple truth. And so this should number one make you humble. And it should also influence your mindset towards other ministers. God, see, if God will call it, if God calls a man and decides to use him, there's nothing you can do about it. You can decide not, you can not, you might not like him, you might not like his style of preaching, you might not like, you know, the way he dresses, you might not like maybe he's flamboyant or something, you might not like all those things. Now, this is not to say, but I think it's also another important balance. This is not to say that it's okay for a man to just do anyhow, you know, he's called anyways. No, that's not the point. You are missing the point of what you think. What I'm trying to say here is this. The man did not do anything to be called. All right? So your opinion about him won't affect the fact that he's called. Now, the way the man acts might affect his efficacy with the call. It might cause him not to do as much as he's supposed to do. For example, let me give you a very good example. If you, if you were Samson's friend, just think about it. If you were Samson's friend, all right? Both of you, now pay attention to this. Both of you, you are God. And then before you before you are born, all right, or better still, by the time you are born, and when you guys are three years old, then you know your parents begin to tell you guys stories about you know your you know stories about their life before they gave birth to you. And then you hear about this boy who his parents already saw a vision about his birth before he was born. Not just did they see a vision, an angel literally appeared to them and told them about this child. Not just did the angel appear to them about, about the child, told them about how to take care of the child, told them about the things the child should eat and it should not eat, told them about the destiny of the child. Now, the question I want to ask myself is, what did Samson do for God to have taken so much, what's the word now, for God to have taken so much pleasure in him that he had such supernatural occurrence surrounding his bed? Nothing. He wasn't even born yet. That's the thing. So that's the, so this is the mindset you have about the about the call of God upon a man's life, or about the gift of the grace of God that makes a man a minister. There is nothing the man did to be called. So if you, for example, are trying to look for you know sixteen keys or principles to working in the anointing of Samson, they're not disturbing yourself. Samson himself had no key or principles to work in. Do you realize? Think about it. Now let's not say you are Samson. Uh, maybe you guys are friends. All right. Now you are the serious, let's say serious temple going one. Now do not forget, Samson had a call of God upon his life. Don't forget. Now he is raised as a Nazirite. There are things he's supposed to do and not to do. But this same Samson, for whatever reason, the Samson that is supposed to be separated and holy unto God now goes to marry a wife of the Philistine. And I think I've explained this thing to you guys before that Delilah wasn't his wife. Delilah was his concubine. His first wife was a daughter of the Philistine. Now, he goes to marry a Philistine. Now, just imagine that you are his friend. All right? Now, you now look at him like, how can God call a man like this? How can God call a man like this? What do you not do rubbish? Now, this is the thing. Whether or not 
don't forget that even while he went to um during the time when he went to marry this woman, all right, and then he was cheated for one reason or the other, there was a point in time when he had to, by supernatural strength, had to tie the tail of foxes together and set them on fire. And as the reason of that, brought destruction to, the, to an entire camp of the Philistines. As a reason of what he did. In other words, even while he was in disobedience, he worked in the anointing. I'm saying all of that to say this, that he, when God called the man, he, called him is it possible that he's in disobedience and the anointing works yes are we together yes why because at the end of the day he got the anointing not because of obedience it's the same thing that happened in moses god tells him stretch your hands stretch your rod to the rock and water will come out moses gets it and because he's anointed he hits the rod on the rock and water comes out did the anointing work or not it did does it mean that um what's the word now does it mean moses was not in was was in obedience no he wasn't he was in disobedience for eating the rock but does it change the fact that he's called no and this is the reason why when aaron and miriam when they were challenging moses i thought you guys this when i thought you were oh no when they challenged moses it's not like what they said was wrong because i mean the same moses who gave the law and said that you must not marry from another tribe is the same Moses who has the wife from another tribe. So if you are going to look at it based on who is right and who is wrong, the reality of it, the truth really, is that Moses was the one in the wrong. But here is the problem. Moses was not called based on how good he was. Moses was not called based on how right he was. He was called solely by grace. That's the simple thing. He was called solely by grace. So here is the thing. Even though because of the disobedience, it can shorten what he's going to be able to do. But that is between the man and God. So now at the end of the day, was Moses punished for him striking the rod on the rock? Yes, he was. At the end of the day, he didn't get to enter the promised land. He only saw it. I need it together. So if, <clears throat> if your concern, excuse me, if your concern is, ah, look at what this man is doing, not God punishing. That's not your concern. I mean, was, ah, the way he's just living is like, that's not your concern. Are we together? As a reason of his, his disobedience, is it possible that he cuts short the things that God has planned or ordained for him to do? That's very possible. But that's between the man and God. Because listen, if you go and if you go and put your head where you're not supposed to, where you're not supposed to put it, you just come out with scars. That's the truth. You will come out with scars. So if you are like Aaron and Miriam, and in your own mind you think you are fighting for God, this our um, this thing, this our brother Moses. Does he think he's the only one I can hear from? But I mean, God told us. That nobody must marry from another tribe, and then you come around here and you marry from another tribe. Who do you think you are? You know, in their mind, they could have even thought maybe I'm fighting for God. But then at the end of the day, what happened? You see, Miriam, she became leprous at the end of the day. Because it's see, you just need to learn when God has called the man, he has called the man. Does this mean we should condone wrong behavior? No, at all. But this, what does this mean? It means if you are in a position to correct such a person, correct. I will tell you that. If he's a friend, talk to him. Ah, correct. We continue to share you that. Just that. So on and so forth. Correct him. But listen, understand that. See, at the end of the day, a call, the call of God upon a man's life is the call of God upon his life. And the call is irrespective of um how good he is, how kind he is, etc., etc. It's not, it's irrespective of that. One of the things you see from Luke chapter 9 and verse 54, when Jesus went to a particular you know, city, and then he went with his, his two other disciples, Right, 
with some, sorry, three of his disciples actually. And then they asked him, he said, should we call down fire from heaven as Elijah did? And then Jesus turned around, all right, and corrected them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are okay? And what you see here is that that would mean that when Elijah called down fire from heaven, if Jesus was there in that day, Jesus would have corrected him. Jesus would have said you are in the wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Are we together? That's what Jesus would have said. But now here is the interesting part. The fire come down when it did not come down. It came down. So again, I'm further trying to establish the fact to you that listen, disobedience oftentimes won't equal no manifestation. That a man is man, and this is why he the work of ministry, even as a man who is called, you have to constantly check your motives. You have to constantly check. See, the only, and I say it again and again, the only determinant for effective ministry eh, is obedience. It's not manifestation. The only, pay attention to that, if I should write that in your notes, the only determinant, all right, for effective ministry is not manifestation, it's obedience. Because if you judge by manifestation, you would have judged that Moses was in the will of God when he struck the rock. If you judge by manifestation, you would have judged that Elijah was doing the right thing when he called down fire from heaven. That's the thing. All right? So you do not judge an effective ministry, all right, by manifestation. You judge by obedience. What has God told them to do? Did they do what God has told them to do? But even in cases like that, eh, when it comes to the call of God upon a man's life, you can discern that what the man is doing is wrong. But if you are not in the place to correct, you shut up. You shut up. Leave. You can pray for the man. You can hope that the man becomes better. You understand? So on and so forth. But you must realize that the call of God upon the man's life is devoid of whether or not you like him. Whether you like him or you don't like him, God has called him. All right? Let's you become like those you know, children who did not realize that they were speaking to a prophet of God. Those 42 children who were calling the prophet of God bold. Listen, it won't matter that he, he is actually bold. You know, but he's bold now. They called him who he was. You know, this is our generation of, you know, we try to twist things. We don't say, maybe for example, you say something like, um, this, man, this man of God even not have to speak good grammar. The, the reality of it is this. Eh? At the end of the day, if we do doctrine and explain, it was wrong to have called out beers to, to have called out a beer to eat them up. That's the truth. If God would have condemned Elijah calling down fire from heaven, he would have also condemned Elisha calling out for beers. But this, this is what you need to understand. Eh? Listen, as I've said before, manifestation doesn't equate that the man is in the will of God, but there will be manifestation. Don't go and be the reason people will be doing Greek and Hebrew to understand that what happened was wrong. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Let me come again. Don't be the reason. You know, it's better now for us that we are the ones that are studying and we see that ah, what Elijah did was wrong. Here you know that Elijah already called down fire and people have died based on the fire he called down. Jonathan, he killed, how many people even died? There was the first batch, there was the second batch. So at least a hundred people died. All right? A hundred people died. Now, we are the ones that are doing the Greek and Hebrew to see that what he did was wrong. Don't be on the receiving end that people will now use you to know whether what the man of God did was wrong. Don't go and be the one that people now be saying, ah, after the man of God did something, then you're not the one that will now be looking at it from Bible and saying, from scripture, is it right what the man of God did? Whether it's right or wrong, some people have died. Okay, so use your brain and just say, you know what? Well, if, if you see that ah, this man of God is doing is wrong, pray for him. Pray for him. Better still, if you know that ah, this thing, I cannot but talk about it. Just carry your mind away. 
or follow him on Instagram. Don't don't be in the party of people that we're talking about because listen, at the end of the day, if he does something, he's a man of God, though. You can argue whether or not you know what Peter did with Ananias and Sapphira is right. All right, we can use Hebrew and um, Greek context, pretext, post-text, etc. etc. to show out that you know it is wrong for you to, you know, for what he did there, would it have been the spirit of God that killed them, etc. etc. We can do the Greek and Hebrew. But here you know it's only someone that is alive that can do Greek and Hebrew. And the as appear today cannot be part of our study. Why? Because they are dead. They can't have done study about whether or not it was right, what Peter did was right. Because they were they were already dead. They are the ones that we're now using as an example. All right. So in, in our in your own case, it might not be that you die, but just use your brain. You know, the man of God says something. You know, after you have thought about Ananias and Sapphira, right? How that, you know, um, you know, it basically it wasn't right. Let me just put it that way. All right, what happened there? The man of God shouldn't have to, shouldn't for any reason cause someone else to die by the spirit of God. You know, probably one of these days I'll do an explanation of that. Okay, but then, then he said something. He said that a church member came to meet him, and then you know, the church member was so happy and he was rejoicing, all right. That, Ah, thank you, sir, for that revelation. You know, I'm so happy. You know, you made it clear to me. And then the, the pastor said something. He said, you know, I didn't say it cannot happen again. I only said it's not right. I didn't say it cannot happen again. All right? And I think that was a very humbling statement to say, actually. He, he didn't say it can happen again. He only said it was not right. So don't be at the receiving end of somebody else's disobedience. Use your brain. That's what I'm going to say. In a generation like this, that is used to talking down on men of God, dishonoring men of God. If you don't like him, just go away. It's not my fault to talk about him. All right? Don't go and use your mouth and put yourself where you're not supposed to be. If you don't like him, go away. Because at the end of the day, his ministry is as a function of the gift of the grace of God. And not just that, he also says that it is also as a function, <coughs> it's a function, I said, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me, by the effectual working of his power, you know, often that we talk about the working of God's power, you know, we talk about the miraculous, right? We talk about how that we can work signs and wonders, we can do this and we can do that. But then Paul is letting you know that one other way you can see the effectual working of God's power in a man is the work of ministry. I know that's why when Paul was speaking, seven verses were three from verse five. He says, "Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to think of anything as, as of ourselves." He says, "But our sufficiency is of God, who also has made us able ministers of the new covenant." In other words, when we speak about our ability as ministers, we speak about, as we've seen, number one, the gift of the grace of God. Number two, the ability of God that is working in us. So when it comes to the work of ministry, the mindset that I must have is this. My reliance, all right, is not on how much prayer I pray, even though prayer is very important. It's not on how much study I do, even though studying is important. My uh, reliance, actually, is on the gift of the grace of God that God gave it to me freely, that's number one. Number two, on the effectual working of his power in me. That oh, because I'm confident that his power is actively working in me, I am confident that manifesting the minister of the new covenant. That's the mindset the minister needs to have. All right, because I can let me move on. He then says in the state, unto me who am less than the least of all sins. So let's talk but this is just a play of words, all right. He's just trying to explain how that you know when it comes to uh in, in ministry and i think it's the mindset that everybody really should have actually when it comes to the work of ministry you must see yourself as being the least of all as far if it is to judge by natural things there is nothing worthy of me 
Are we together? This was the reason why in I think Acts 14, all right, when Paul and Barnabas, you know, were uh, I've forgotten the name of the, the place exactly where they were in. I think I can't remember actually. In Acts 14, all right, and then they had done a miracle, all right, and then you saw that the people of the the people in that particular location gathered together, and then they called Paul Mercury, and then they called Barnabas Jupiter, and they said the gods have come to us as men. And you know, they began to sacrifice in front of the temple gate because they thought that the gods had, had come as men. Now, something very interesting happened in that particular place. Let's go there. Look at Acts 14. Acts 14. Acts 14. Acts 14. I'm going to read from verse 14. He says, Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul head off, he says they rent their clothes, meaning they tore their clothes. And running among the people crying out, saying, Stop, why do ye these things? We are also men of like passions with you. So, like, anytime I read this part, it humbles me. This is why. Number one. Now, they are seeing people, you know, doing um funny things, doing sacrifices, because they thought they were God's commandment. You know, here it is today. Let me just quickly shake this table. Here is today. We'll come up. We'll come up with one doctrinal way of playing around such a thing, and we'll call it honor. We'll say, "Ah, no, it doesn't really look like that." So we'll say, "We'll say, like maybe even if we correct them, we won't tell them that they should stop sacrificing. We'll just say, you know what? That ah, there's a way you can do this sacrifice that it is also God and not about men. You know, you, there's a way we can twist theology to make it suit us. You know, if we want to teach Bible." We must teach Bible the way by this. Let me give you a very good example. Now, before a particular time, we oftentimes say things like, um, um, we say things like, you know, stick to scripture. Call men, for example, we are teaching on honor. We, we say honor is calling men what God calls them, right? So, um, 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 if God calls, if God has called him out to be an apostle, honoring him is calling him what God has called him, all right? Honoring him is not calling all manner of names. Honoring is saying, oh, this is what God has called you, so I choose to call you this. Now, that's what we see when we are teaching honor. But let's say, for example, is a person's baby, all right? Now, the same person or the same man of God who has been talking down on, you know, calling, for example, calling people, say, um, the best pastor in the world, or the distant or that, you know, all those grandiose names. Now, it's time for his own birthday, and then somebody calls him that, and he finds a theology to satisfy him. He finds a way around it. He said, well, it's not necessarily man worship. You know, it's honor, really. It's about the heart. You know, there's a way you can twist. And this is not to say that calling someone the best person in the world is wrong anyways. I mean, I, I, to be honest, it's not, it's not my place to correct whatever anybody wants to call anybody. But my point is, there is a way you can try to twist things that it looks like it's spiritual, but it's rubbish. That's the truth. Paul and Barnabas will have come here and say, see, the issue is not the sacrifice, you know. The issue is what do you have in your mind as you are making the sacrifice. So if I say continue sacrificing, you know, what's in your mind, just when you're sacrificing to God. It's possible that they could have said that, but that would have been rubbish. Okay. So the way to see it is this: they came there and look at what happened. They tore their clothes, they stopped them from offering the sacrifice. And look at the interesting thing they said here. They said, We also are men of like passion with you, meaning. They equated themselves with them. Number one, don't forget that these people are unbelievers. 
They are not believers. They, they are unbelievers. I'm talking of the people that Paul and Barnabas were talking to. They are not believers. They are unbelievers. Number one. Number two, these people are not even in the work of ministry. And then Paul and Barnabas were still saying, we are men just like you. That's the mindset we have in the work of ministry. That when you are doing ministry, you reckon that see, the only difference between me and these people is the gift of the grace of God upon my life. That's it. And that's why Paul could say, see, also me, who am least and the least, who am less than the least of all saints. Meaning, if I'm supposed to judge by character or by what people do, all right, based on qualification, I'm the least. That's what Paul is saying. Based on qualification, based on, you know, right, maybe based on my standing, all right, as a believer, I, there is no reason why I could have been called. It's right to let, it's right to further buttress your idea of the gift of the grace of God. And this is the mindset the minister should have that fear. If this thing is based on my ability and what I can do, I'm nowhere close to deserving of it. This kind of mindset is always be humble as minister of the gospel. So that any miracle you see, all right, any supernatural manifestation you see, any light you see that is blessed, you will know. And that's why I love this beautiful song by, you know, Minister Dwayne Eko, where he says, um, I proclaim that you are the one backing me up. I proclaim you are the one making things happen, showing me mercy. You are the one. Meaning, it won't matter how much I have been able to give as a minister of the gospel. It won't matter how many lives I have been able to bless, how much I have been able to, you know, I will still record that it's a portion of the gift of the grace of God. This is the mindset every minister must have. And I think it's very important in a day and time like us when we are having much more young ministers. You know, because there's a likelihood for you as, as, as you begin to see some manifestations here and there. Maybe you pray for a sick person, right? And then the person gets healed, you know, and then you give the word of knowledge, you know, you're not seeing manifestations in your ministry. There can be a possibility where you begin to see yourself as, ah, I'm called, you know, ah, there's something happening, there's a power work, you know, and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not saying talk down on the grace of God that work in you or talk down on the call of God upon your life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying as you speak boldly of God's call upon your life, you reckon that it is solely by grace. That, so the two don't have to, the two are not mutually exclusive. They don't have to be different from each other. One can go with the other. The two truths can coexist, which is that one, I reckon that God has called me to be a minister of the gospel. I reckon that his grace is working actively in me, all right, so that I can do the things I'm supposed to do. But I also reckon that this thing I'm doing is as a reason of the gift of the grace of God. Without it, I'm nothing. That's, the, that's how to stay humble as a minister. Without it, I'm nothing. And so, I remember a man of God said something. He said, there are times you have to learn to, you have to learn to have times when you tear your clothes, figuratively, in that sense. Where, when men are praising you, you just come and say, ah, God, see, I know all these things they are saying. It might look to them like I have what I'm being figured out. But God, I come to reckon and say, without you, I'm nothing. That's the mindset every minister must have. You must never come to the point where you believe that, ah, and this is one of the ways, this is one of the things that, that would influence your consistency with spiritual things over the years. Because it's only a man who doesn't reckon ministry as the grace of God that will do the work of ministry without praying. But you see, when you reckon that, see, this work of ministry I'm doing, it's not a function of how intelligent I am or how effective I am. When you have that kind of mindset, you pray. When you have that kind of mindset, you'll be given to constant study. Because you know that, see, if it is left to my own knowledge, I know nothing. But if I'm going to do what God will have me do, I'm going to have to stay with his word. Because that's the effectiveness I need as a minister of the gospel. Okay? So, this actually has a ripple effect. Do you understand me? That mindset of understanding that, see, the grace of God, I'm bold in it too, but I still reckon that it is by gift. 
that it is solely a gift that was given to me. It's a free gift. As a reason of that, you begin to see yourself do the things that are supposed to do much more. You give yourself more to prayer. You give yourself more to the study of God's word. And in doing so, you will now begin to see much more manifestations or expressions of power in your ministry. So it's it's actually a positive feedback cycle. All right? Let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians 3. Oh, glory to God. Ephesians 3. Alright, so it says, also who to me, who am less, less than less than least of all sins, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So it's basically letting you see further buttressing the idea of the gift of the grace of God. Alright. Now let's continue. It says, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. The fellowship of the mystery. Now the word here, the word fellowship here is the Greek word koinonia. It means it means to, it's, it's a word that denotes a sharing, right? You know, it's a word that denotes, um, 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 what's the word now? I'm trying to look for a, I'm, I'm trying to look for a word that, it doesn't just signify fellowship. It actually speaks about two or more people coming together onto something, all right? So it's not just um, when it says that, um, to make all men see what is the fellowship. What he's talking about there is not just, uh, you know, how that men can partake. It's already talking about the fact that people gather together onto something, all right? And it says the fellowship of the mystery. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what is this mystery? And of course, as you've, seen, as you've been seeing by context, the mystery was referring to the work of salvation. And so he's saying, he's still letting, he's still letting you know that he's saying the same thing. He's saying that to make my ministry is to make all men know the fellowship of the mystery. In other words, to make all men see, all right, to make all men see, or to make men see how, or to make men see the possibility of the Gentiles. Don't forget, the Gentiles are the ones who are not part of it, all right? Do not forget that the, the crux of Paul's ministry is to preach that the Gentiles can also be saved, basically. To show how that for a man to be saved is by salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, meaning the Gentiles can also be partakers of this same thing. Meaning it's not a function of the doings of the law, all right? And so Paul is letting you see that my ministry is to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Meaning I'm letting all men see the possibility of, of being joined onto this mystery. Of course, the mystery revealed is salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, so I'm, I'm letting all men see the possibility of how Gentiles who were not a part. Of course, Gentiles here will refer to Nigerians, etc., etc., who were not a part of the mystery. Being now a part of it, so that's a sharing, a fellowship, a communion. All right, it says to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid. So it lets you know what this what you mean by mystery. All right, it says which from the beginning of the world has been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. So what you see in verse nine is pretty much the same thing that you see in verse six. Paul is explaining what is what his ministry is in verse 6 he lets you see that the gentiles should be fellow heads almost literally the same because if you look at the word fellow heads it's actually a word fellow fellowship all right so he lets you know that it is pretty much from the same root as you see in as the word that you see in verse verse 9 fellowship of the mystery fellow heads are we together that the gentiles will be fellow heads and of the same body and partakers of his promise in christ by the gospel 
right? So, in other words, like the Gentiles being followers, how are they followers? Because they are now in fellowship, right? Because the Gentiles are now in fellowship with the Jews, also God, they are followers. All right, let me show you something. Look at First John, First John one. First John one. I just want to butcher it very well, so you have a better understanding of what I'm saying. First John one. So this was John writing. All right, and let me just help you. He was writing to unbelievers. And look at what he says here. He says, "That which we have best preached." Preach. He says, "That which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son Jesus Christ." So. What John is trying to convince unbelievers to be saved, and his own way of presenting the gospel to them is that he says, You know what? I want you to have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father. Meaning, everyone who has fellowship with the Father is in union with the Father. But now we want you to have fellowship with us, even as we have fellowship with the Father. Meaning, when you now come into this fellowship, you have fellowship with us and you have fellowship with the Father. Or better still, anyone who has fellowship with the Father also has fellowship with every one of us, all right? So back to what we had in Ephesians 3. So Ephesians 3, now, back to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3. Verse 10, sorry, verse 9. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. So now, in other words, to make all men and see the possibility of being a part of the fellowship of what is that mystery? Salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, basically, verse 9 and verse 6 are saying the same thing. All right? And then, in our continuous, it says, and in talking about the mystery, it says, which from the beginning of the world has been made in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus. Verse 10, it says, to the intent that now, and this is what I'm going to be rounding up, it says, to the intent that now, also, the principalities and power in heavenly places might be known by the church, the manifold, manifold wisdom of God. There's too much English in this place. Let's use the HCS. That the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I also use another version to help you better understand what is being said here. HCSB. That is Ephesians 3 and verse 10. So it says, okay, All right. So it says in verse 10, it says, This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Again, this is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heaven. This would mean one thing. This would mean that the way God has planned for rulers and authorities, or better still, principalities and powers, to know about him is that the church is the one that will make it known to them. Back to the KJV. To the intent that now, also the principalities and powers, now, do not forget that principalities and powers here just refers to, as I've told you guys before, dominions, authorities, etc., etc. This is, I mean, in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, when I was talking about principalities and powers, it says, um, Ephesians 6 verse 12, it says, we are not up against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Are we together? And so, uh, principalities and powers here will refer to, I mean, in a good sense, it refers to angels, but also in the other sense, it refers to demons. 
they refer to the authorities of the high places. That, in other words, these people in and of themselves do not understand salvation. It is the church that displays the multifaceted wisdom of God in salvation to them. You better understand this. Go to First Peter chapter one, or better because of time. I'm just you know, going to run through. In First Peter one, from verse nine, it says, um, uh, um, "Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul." It says, "Of which salvation the prophets inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching for one manner of time, the spirit of Christ which was in them be signified, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow." He says, um, testifying that not unto themselves, but also us, they did minister the things which the Holy Ghost, you know, um, sent out from everyone that said. He now said something very interesting. He says, which things in angels desire to look into. What this would mean is that the angels themselves do not understand that which is happening in salvation. Because you need to record, right? you need to understand this, that even when you see how, at least from divisions in the Old Testament, when you see how angels would stand Right. For example, I, I think it was Isaiah who was speaking about the angels of the presence of God, the seraphims. And he said the seraphims have six wings. He says two for flying, two for covering their feet, and two for covering their eyes. Because even though they are in the presence of God, they do not see him or behold him clearly. Now, you need to understand the amazement that must have been in the heart of angels. When the God who they cannot behold, right? They are constantly in his presence, but they can't behold him. Now, he comes as a man, as a baby in the flesh. Why would they rejoice? Because now they see in a man, all right, they see in a man God. This baby is God as a man. So the God who for eternity they have not been able to see because their eyes are covered with wings, now they see him as a person in the flesh. Imagine the amazement they would have had. And that was the reason why, look at first Timothy 3. First Timothy, I think I should just add this. So it, I feel like it would help you, you know, have a better understanding of something. First Timothy 3 and verse 16. First Timothy 3 and verse 16. When it was talking about the mystery of godliness, it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It said, God was manifest in the flesh, he was justified in the spirit, he was seen of angels. People oftentimes don't understand the weight of that statement, seen of angels. But when you realize that, Angels who have been in the presence of God for eternity and have never seen him. God comes as a man. One of, you need to understand that the, 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 the incarnation is not just a beauty to men. It's a magnificence to angels. Even angels were blown up at the incarnation. That was the reason why when the baby was born, they had to have a chorus. Immediately, they burst into singing and joy in front of shepherds. Because you need to understand that they, up until now, they had never seen God too. So just as we sing, Mary, did you know that your baby, that your baby boy, that when you kiss the face of, uh, when you kiss the baby, you kiss the face of God. Just as we sing that, even the angels too, they were also, they must have been looking at Jesus in amazement. That's the thing because, must, so are you serious? So this is God as a man? So that amazement wasn't just for us. It was also for angels as well. Because the way God has planned it is that angels would only be able to understand the things about him through men. That's the purpose and plan of God. That angels would only have an understanding of God and his work of salvation through men. And so that's what he said in Ephesians 3. Go back to Ephesians 3 and verse 10. Ephesians 3 and verse 10. 
to the intent that now also principalities and powers. So principalities and powers here could either refer to angels or demons. Because it could refer to um, all manner of authority in the heavenly places. You like, like personally, I don't even care. There are six ranks of demons. It doesn't matter to me. All that matters to me is that the believer in Christ Jesus has authority over them all. All right. And so Paul is saying here that the intent of God is that through the church, the multifaceted wisdom of God will be known to authorities and power. In other words, even angels themselves would see the things that believers do and now understand what salvation is about. So this is a mindset to see. And he says, how would this happen? So what Paul is doing here so far is to let you see what his ministry is. That's it. The point of my ministry is that I showed one man the possibility of Gentiles being saved, the, the fellowship of the mystery, all right? I showed them the possibility of Gentiles being saved to the intent that as a function of them coming into salvation and by the things that they do and display, even angels would see and be able to know the multi-faceted wisdom of God. Of course, as I've, as I've said again and again, principalities and powers here won't just, just be talking about angels, we also talk about devils, we also talk about demons, etc., etc. But that is how it is. Because they themselves do not understand. And that's why people say that even angels desire to look into it, meaning they don't understand it. And how will they understand? It's not by God explaining to them, it's by the things that the church will put on display. As the reason of the activities of the church, the angels would have a better understanding, all right, of this, the work of salvation or the, the wisdom for God. This is another word to mean one thing. I'm just going to say this phrase that angels themselves are learning. Compared to the mindset that people oftentimes have, that angels are all knowing beings. That's not true. Only God is all knowing. Angels themselves are learning. And it should interest you to know that angels are learning from you. They are learning from you. I'm just going to stop there. So because of that, I'm going to stop here for, for today. Um, we've been able to get to Ephesians 3, verse 10. In our next, um, in our next talk, all right, I'm going to do my best possible to make sure that we finish Ephesians 3. What I want to do subsequently is for, like, is for, for the remaining chapters, I'm going to do my best to ensure that each chapter is covered in at least three tracks because we don't have much time left. We need to move to the next series, right? But we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, your truth. We thank you for light and insight and revelation in our hearts. We thank you for questions that have been answered. We thank you for the ability you've given us to us to walk in the world. We thank you, Father, for this great and precious promises you've given unto us. And not just promises that you've given unto us, but things that you have actualized for us in Christ Jesus. That now we can see that not only Jews can be saved, but Gentiles and I can be saved. And as a reason of this work of salvation you've done for us, you, you put us on display such that even angels learn from us to see your multifaceted, your manifestation. We give you praise and glory, O Father. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah.